to Radio Beacon, the podcast of Beacon Communications. I'm Dan Kittredge, editor of the Cranston Herald. I am once again flying solo today. Jake Morocco is taking the day. He's the editor of the Johnson Sunrise, normally joins me, but uh, um, I'm going to take advantage of the, uh, the time today to, uh, this is the first episode in a uh, series of a few episodes I'll be releasing. Um, today I'm recording, it is uh, Friday. Uh, August 21st, which seems uh, impossible looking at the calendar. Time is just flying by here this summer, but uh, um, I'm going to release a few episodes today and uh, likely tomorrow. Um, we'll see how far I get, but uh, in the recent weeks I've been um, uh, speaking with, sitting down with uh, candidates for citywide offices in Cranston. Cranston is one of the uh, real hot spots in this year's election locally. Um, topping the list, obviously, is the race to succeed Mayor Alan Fung. Um, there are two Republicans and there are two Republicans and three Democrats running, um, and we'll get to that in a minute. We also uh, I've been sitting down with um, uh, candidates for city council, citywide seats on the council. There are four Democrats running for three spots on the November ballot. Um, but uh, there are other races going on as well. Um, last week, uh, in our regular episode, we uh, included my interview with State Representative Chris Millay in District 16. He's a Democrat seeking a second term in the legislature. Um, that was a great conversation. I hadn't had a chance to meet him previously, so it was great to sit down with him. Um, he is facing a challenge in the Democratic primary from Brandon Potter, who is associated with the Rhode Island Political Cooperative. He's part of a slate, a growing slate of um, progressive candidates. Um, you know, I, ever since the, uh, the 2016 presidential primary here in Rhode Island, um, you know, once uh, Senator Sanders uh, won big here in Rhode Island after, you know, for years this had kind of been Clinton country and had been a uh, more of a bastion of uh, establishment, more centrist Democrats. Um, you know, that's kind of the tradition of, of the Democratic Party in this state and uh, certainly still in its leadership at the assembly um, and in a lot of the statewide offices. But uh, in the years since, we've seen this, you know, and this trend has played out elsewhere in the country as well. Um, uh, that, you know, I think Senator Sanders uh, served to coalesce some of this. And uh, locally, we've just seen a growing slate of, of uh, candidates that are more, you know, pushing for change, pushing for new faces, new voices, um, certainly have a more progressive agenda than is often associated with, with uh, mainline Democratic politics in uh, this state. So um, long story short, I, I had the chance to sit down with Brandon um, last week, I uh, hadn't met him yet either. It was really good to meet him and to sit down. Um, we had a good conversation. He, he has some really, uh, um, you know, personal stories about how, uh, the pandemic has affected him personally and, and motivated him to get into, uh, into this race. So, um, I won't spoil it too much, but, uh, uh coming up in a couple of minutes here, we'll do our, uh, I'll turn to that conversation. And hopefully for voters in District 16, gives you a good chance to, uh, you know, hear directly from both of the candidates and uh, get a feel for them and their 
um, their vision. Because um, this is uh, in Cranston, really one of the, in the primary, one of the top um, contested legislative races. Um, so I thought it was important to, to uh, hear from these candidates. Um, you know, moving back to, uh, we'll, we'll get to that conversation with Brandon in a moment. Um, just as a quick, we usually, you know, start the episode with a, a news roundup. Um, I'll keep it a little Cranston-centric today. Uh, this week we had, um, you know, speaking of the race for mayor previously, we had uh, our, the first of two uh, mayoral primary debates that we have co-sponsored with the Cranston Public Library. City Council President Mike Farina and Citywide Councilman Ken Hopkins, the two Republican candidates for mayor, uh, took part in that event. It was held Wednesday the 19th, streamed live on Facebook. Um, I've gotten some really nice feedback, and I thought it went really well. So um, I really appreciate both of the candidates taking the time. Um, I thought it was an informative and, and good discussion and debate that we had. Um, and thank you again to Ed Garcia and his staff at the Cranston Public Library for all their support and uh, making this possible by hosting it and handling a lot of the technical um, aspects of things. So um, thank you very much to them. Um, and we have a, uh, a second uh, debate with the Democratic, the three Democrats running for mayor in Cranston. That's coming up this coming Wednesday, eight, uh, August 26th. That one's going to begin at 630 um, to provide us a little extra time with the three candidates who, uh, for those not familiar, are Citywide Councilman Steve Stikos, former Ward 4 Councilwoman Maria Bucci, and Adam Carbone, who's running a, uh, an unorthodox campaign, to say the least. But uh, um, So tune in for that. That'll be broadcast live on the Cranston Herald's Facebook page and the Cranston Public Library's Facebook page. I'm looking forward to it. If you have any questions that uh, you'd like me to ask the candidates or think I should be asking, um, send them my way at dan at rodybeat, R-H-O-D-Y-B-E-A-T dot com. I've already gotten quite a number, so I'm working on that list uh, of questions today, um, and hopefully I can get to as many of them as possible. In terms of the other episodes that I'll be releasing in the next day or two, um, uh, today I'll be putting up uh, my conversation with Maria Bucci. Um, she was the last of the, the mayoral candidates I hadn't gotten a chance to sit down with yet, so she was very gracious and made time um, for me last weekend, and uh, we had a great conversation. So look for that. I will definitely get that one up um, later this afternoon, again today the 21st of August. Um, the other uh, interviews that are forthcoming are with three of the four Democrats, uh, who are seeking citywide seats on the city council. Um, I've spoken with Dylan Zalazo, Larry Warner, and Jessica Marino. Um, all of them were, uh, were good enough to make the time, um, had great conversations with all of them. It was very nice to sit down and talk about uh, their vision for the city and, uh, and what they're hoping to accomplish this year and going forward. Um, the fourth Democrat who is running, Paul Arquetto, currently a member of the school committee, uh, and a former Ward 3 representative on the City Council. Uh, I did reach out to Paul, and uh, he's decided not to, um, to comment, to speak before the primary. So uh, apologies to listeners and to, to readers uh, who won't get to hear directly from uh, Mr. Arquetto ahead of uh, September 8th, but uh, we did reach out and uh, wanted to give him the opportunity 
uh, as well. But um, I'm looking forward, and I'm glad that we're able to uh, to uh, connect voters directly and let them hear directly from um, three of the candidates who are running. And then uh, it's important to note, you know, once we get through the primary, there are three Republicans, uh, Don Roach, Nicole Renzulli, and Bob Ferry, running for citywide council seats. There's also a couple of ward um, seats that will be contested on the council. Um, and obviously after September 8th or thereabouts, we will uh, know who the two candidates are, the two finalists for the mayor's office. So we will continue to um, sit down and speak with these candidates, bring you stories here and in print um, so that uh, voters can be informed and, uh, and make the right decision for, for themselves and for their communities. So um, thank you again to all of the candidates. Uh, it's been a lot of fun and, uh, and we're, we're getting close here. It's just a little more than two weeks before the primary. So I know early voting is already underway at City Hall. Um, I've, uh, I need to check in with uh, the registrars over there and see how they're doing, but it's, uh, they are very, uh, it's a good operation they have. So I'm, I'm uh, uh, hopefully everyone uh, can vote safely, vote, vote early. Um, I know the mail ballot process is, uh, I did see Nick Lima from the registrar's office posted that uh, on Twitter that um, they received an enormous volume of and processed a, like something like 4,000 plus mail ballot applications for the primary, which I think far exceeded uh, pretty much any previous um, election they've, they've done so. Um, I, uh, I'm glad to see people are, are interested in voting and, um, and uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed here as, as things near that, uh, that everything goes well, which I imagine, I imagine it will. Um, other, elsewhere in the news this week, uh, I, won't, I won't go on too much longer, but uh, quick plug there, there was um, last week, a, uh, after our deadline, a, a much anticipated site visit at uh, Mulligan's Island which is being eyed as the site of a new uh, development centered, anchored by a Costco. The, uh, the City Council and Planning Commission held a, a joint site visit, which they've done recently um, with other projects, including at the former Mardi Gras site on Oakland Ave, which is going to be turned into a, uh, a liquor store and a new um, commercial development. Um, they had a, a, a well-attended site visit for that earlier this year, and I know they've done others for other projects as well and it's um and I, I i view it as a, a a nice way to um uh you know get people out to the site get kind of a common understanding of uh the parameters and things and um just get more of a tactile feel for for projects that often you know exist kind of in this uh, on paper and especially for people that aren't abutters or familiar with the areas you know um putting the visual to it it can be very helpful so Anyway, last week there was this uh, site visit, and um, obviously the Costco project has uh, uh, garnered a lot of attention, become a central issue in this campaign, and uh, there's a lot of opposition to it at this point. I mean, uh, based on my the comments from from members of the city council, at least um, that have commented, it uh, does not the prognosis does not look great for the developer receiving approval for this um, zoning change that's that's needed for the project to go forward as proposed. But there were, you know, my rough count looking at images I took from the event while there, uh, I'd say at least 100 people, um, a big crowd of elected officials, including Speaker Mattiello, Mayor Fung, uh, Barbara Ann Fenton Fung, who was, who was challenging the speaker this year. 
um, you know, members of the council, candidates for uh, many of the candidates I mentioned for council seats were there. I think all of them possibly. And uh, um, so anyway, the developer spoke for um, a while about the project, answered some questions. It, it wasn't really a public, uh, it wasn't a public hearing. Those begin in September. On September 1st, the Planning Commission is set to hold its hearing, and that's the first step in the formal uh, public hearing process. And from there, it would move on to the City Council's Ordinance Committee and then the full council meeting in September is the, the timeline that uh, is set up and appears set to be on track, barring any uh, changes in, in things. Um, so anyway, uh, check out this week's edition of the Herald for coverage of that. Um, I tried to squeeze in some more pictures from the, the event because I was there and walking around, but uh, I ran out of space. So, um, But uh, you can get a sense on Twitter. I did post a couple as well. Follow me on Twitter at RodyDanK, uh, and you can uh, see uh, get a sense of the scope of the the crowd that was there. And um, um, we'll have more coverage, obviously, of, of Costco as it uh, the project, the proposal moves forward. Um, with that, let's move on to I guess one last note I'd make the uh, you know schools. We continue to be monitoring the school reopening process. I believe since we last recorded, uh, the, the governor has some. Um, uh, formally announced a, uh, uh, or perhaps we did mention it last week, but the start of the school year has been delayed two weeks. Cranston is among those that uh, is, is grappling with all of this uncertainty. Um, I did have some coverage in this week's edition of uh, superintendent's uh, comments during a couple of recent school committee meetings and kind of how the district is approaching um, this whole process. So we're, we're set to receive more definitive word from uh, the governor during the week of August 31st as to what um, options will be recommended or, or used for, um, you know, whether it's full in-person, partial in-person, full distance learning. So, and there, I believe there are four scenarios at play for each district. And I, I think might even be more granular than that down to the school level or the grade level. But, um, but anyway, we will stay on top of that for you as well. Um, and check out this week's edition for for some more from the governor and from uh, Superintendent Janine Notamassi about um, the process at this point. With that, we will move on to my conversation with District 16 House candidate Brandon Potter. Um, and after that, uh, um, check back uh, later today for additional um, episodes, including uh, next up will be my conversation with Maria Bucci. and. Uh, and the citywide uh, Democratic Council candidates. And go back uh, to, you know, our archive is up. Check out um, our conversations with all the candidates. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Subscribe today if you haven't already, and we will talk to you soon. For having me, Dan, I appreciate it. Of course, it's good to meet you. We haven't had a chance to uh, meet yet, so nice to meet you as well. Um, to start things off, for folks that um, aren't familiar with you, I know you're a first-time office seeker. Can you tell us a little bit about 
your background and uh, why you decided to get involved this year this way? Yeah, first time running for office. Uh, really, quite a few things had to have happened for me to get to this point. It never was a personal aspiration of mine to be a politician. Uh, I just felt that it was an obligation after, after a number of different things unfolded. So, a little background on me. Uh, born and raised in Cranston, I just turned 36 years old, and my girlfriend is 31 years old. Her name is Katie, and she has a genetic kidney disease called FSGS. So, for the last three years, she has been on dialysis treatment and struggling to get a transplant because of our broken healthcare system. So, I'd like to expand a little bit on, on that. So, with her disease, she qualifies for Medicare. And while Medicare will pay for her transplant, they won't approve her transplant unless she has a supplemental secondary insurance policy to pay for the medication she'll have to be on for the rest of her life to make sure her body doesn't reject her organ. So, Medicaid would cover that, but with her being on state disability, she gets a check for $1,100 per month, and that's too much money for her to qualify for Medicaid. So for all of last year and part of 2018, we spent a little over $300 per month on a supplemental insurance policy for her to keep her on the transplant list. And we got some really good news in December that she hadn't made the top 10 on that list. And then in January, we got a letter in the mail saying that because of new regulations and guidelines, her policy was canceled. She did not qualify for a new policy. And because the open enrollment period was over at that point, I couldn't even add her onto my employer-based healthcare. Now, this is just really, really reflective to me of our healthcare system as a whole because I see it so up close. She does dialysis herself at home. There's no doctor, there's no nurse that comes there. She facilitates it herself. And Medicare, the taxpayer, gets billed $55,000 per month for her to do that by a private company. So when you see that, that's somebody's real life experience where they're being denied uh, a life-saving procedure in favor of healthcare profits for private corporations. It's just really powerful to see that up close. So our healthcare system and how it affects people is something really, really near and dear to me. But that wasn't ultimately what compelled me to run. In March, um, well, for the last nine years, I've made a living um, being employed in the car business. And most recently, I was a general sales manager for a Herb Chambers dealership. And in March, at the beginning of the pandemic, they closed my store permanently and laid off over 50 people. And that was really impactful to me too, because obviously everybody was very concerned. People were really confused, not really knowing what to expect with the pandemic. And I saw a really successful private business owner add on to that concern by letting everybody know that they were now permanently unemployed too. And they asked everybody to stay there for a few weeks and close the dealership. I didn't stay based on 
Katie's health condition. Uh, I didn't want to indirectly expose her to the virus. My my mother is also um, in uh, on chemotherapy treatment, and I often take her to her treatments, and I didn't want to expose her either. So I left, but most of the people there stayed, and my receptionist there caught coronavirus and passed away from it. And that to me was just really, really powerful to see that we can't rely on business to always do the right thing. That's the role of government. Government's role is to regulate business, not the other way around. And I think that theme plays so widely across our whole political atmosphere of so many of the problems that we have in government. So as I was out of work, it really gave me a chance to start looking at the local side of politics a lot more. And like a lot of people that are self-identifying Democrats, I've been really you know, distracted, for lack of a better word, by the Trump presidency and all of the headlines that he makes on a day-to-day -day basis with whatever comes out of his mouth. And it's easy to kind of get lost in that shuffle. But as I started looking at what happens locally, I recognized a lot of the same themes and a lot of the same problems that we have in, in our country as a whole right here in, in our own backyard. And as I started talking to neighbors and friends of mine within my district, the, the common theme that I had seen was that um, our representative is really not that responsive, where people would call him, people would email him and, and not get an answer. And I was one of those people myself uh, where I had contacted him a few times and not gotten a reply. But then a report came out on RI rank uh, a few months ago and it rated every rep and every senator in the state. And one thing that I, I will say about me is, um, you know, I, I have my political ideology and things that I believe in, but more than anything, what I really respect is transparent government. And our representative had run on open government and then was rated third to fourth worst in the um, entire house on his voting record for that. And that was really, really eye-opening to me. So very concerning. And um, you know, when I when I reached out to him about it, um, I, I didn't like the response that I got about it. And I just feel that there's so much of a disconnect with the people that are elected locally as Democrats with their their values and what people expect their values to be. Um, you know, we have a very sharp divide in our country right now, and. I think certain actors play on that divide and it's intentional, but there's also a lot of truth to it where people just have very, very different values in, in what policies we want to advocate for. And I think by and large, a lot of people in Rhode Island run as Democrats because we're a blue state so they can be elected, but they don't hold Democrat values and they don't represent the values of, of what Democrat voters would expect of them. And unfortunately, I feel like that is that is the case that we have here. So, um, you know, whether it's enacting common sense gun legislation or standing up for a woman's right to choose, there's some really, really fundamental stark contrast between my representative and, and myself. And 
I sat back and I just said to myself that it's up to regular, ordinary people to demand change and to create change in government. And I won't be one of those people who just sits back and complains about what happens here if I'm not willing to step up and do the hard work. So it wasn't anything about me where I, I feel like I'm just this you know spectacular, one-of-a-kind person that can, that can do everything. But I feel that it's an obligation of regular, everyday people that actually care about our community and how our government works for us to actively get involved and create that change. So I felt obligated to run, and that's what got me to this point. Sure. Yeah, I know I've seen different actors on social media critiquing some, as you alluded to, some specific aspects of the representative's record. Um, I guess generally, I mean, that, that's your view of, of him and the, the leadership, that there's a broader issue there with transparency and with the way they, they approach government. Yeah, and one of the platforms that Rep. Malay had run on was open government. So when you see a lack of transparency there, that, that should be really, really concerning. And you mentioned the, the social media. Um, I think it's really telling that he also blocked me on Twitter for, for pointing out that he obviously has a lot of financial ties to uh, House leadership. But... I think it's very reflective of the lack of accountability and the lack of accessibility that I'm talking about. So, you know, as I've as I've campaigned and knocked on doors and talked to more and more voters, most people, if they're a Democrat and they elect a Democrat, they're expecting a certain foundation of a value system. People are shocked to find out that there's so many Democrats, so-called Democrats locally, that are anti-choice that are endorsed by the NRA or take money from the gun lobby. And we have so much just fundamental corruption in this state where corporate lobbyists buy so much policy that I think people expect a Democrat to advocate for the, the values and the beliefs that we share and to be the party that stands up for working class people that need help the most. And unfortunately, I don't see that by and large with the, the majority that we have in the house right now. Tell us a little bit more, you're, you're part of a growing you know, slate or, or movement within the Democratic Party, a lot of progressive candidates for uh, assembly seats this year and some local offices as well. Um, can you go into a little bit more about what, what this, you know, how you see this playing out, this dynamic and what kind of the core issues or the core motivating factors are for you? Yeah, so I mean, there, there's some that are really broad ranging um, for motivating factors, and there's some that are very direct. And I think it's really a great representation of how our government is designed to work and how it's supposed to work, where it's regular, ordinary people that are actively engaging being willing to put their name out there, put themselves out there and create that change. So to, to put it frankly, when I talk about a direct result, I am not in agreement with the leadership of House Speaker Nick Mattiello. I do not think that he represents the values of the Democratic Party. And I think by and large, we have a lot of local candidates, in my opinion, 
run for office as Democrats so they can be elected, but they really represent much more of a foundation and belief of what's typically Republican in nature. And I feel that a lot of people locally in Rhode Island, people are obviously very overworked. They don't really have time to do what you do and be an investigative journalist and really dig in to see their, the positions of the people that represent them. So when they elect a Democrat, they probably just have you know, a, um, a certainty and a comfort level that those people are going to act as Democrats and align with their values. And the more that I've spoken to people with, um, throughout this campaign, people are really shocked at the policies and the positions that the people that represent them have. So when we talk about progressive politics, people you know, quite often ask me, are you a progressive, are you a liberal? And I can definitely identify with, with those labels. However, I think that we're really at a point right now where not just in our state, but in our whole country, we have to dig deeper than these blanket labels and we have to really find the policy positions and the values that people share. Because I have some really close friends of mine that are Trump supporters and I've met a lot of people throughout this campaign that are on the wide range of the political spectrum. But when you actually sit down and talk to people and you really think about the things that affect working families and everyday people, we can really find a lot that we agree on. And I think those are the important things to focus on. Not so much, are you a conservative? Are you a liberal? It's how do we, we fix the way our government works and make it more effective and beneficial for everyday working class people? And I think that this pandemic has really opened the eyes of a lot of people, myself included, with just how critical and how important it is that we have functional, competent government that we can rely on and people in government that we can trust to represent our values. To get um, specific in terms of the the assembly and how it's approached this crisis, you know, mm -hmm. some folks there's been criticism that uh, um, people think they should have been back in session earlier. Um, obviously, they're out of you know. There's been some cases up there, so their hearings were were canceled this week. Um, I know you expressed your views on on leadership, uh, the, the leadership in the, in the assembly, but what, what's your view of how they've approached? Uh, this situation? Yeah, I think it's really reflective of the overall culture of our politics, where there's a, a sad irony, maybe if you want to call it that, where there's a tone that we're rushing people back to work and we want to prioritize rebuilding the economy and not having the economic collapse be worse than the healthcare crisis that we have. But meanwhile, the General Assembly refuse to meet virtually. I think I just read yesterday that now the Senate is going to meet virtually. And this could have been something that was set in place months ago. I don't see a sense of urgency when I look at our local government. It's very nonchalant in the approach where there's real work, it's really critical that we do it, and we need it done now, and we needed it done months ago. So the simple fact that 
the General Assembly was not in session, not actively working to figure out the best way to get us out of this situation that we're in, this crisis that we're in, but at the same time would promote the narrative of why people need to get back to work quick so we rebuild our economy, I think just really speaks volumes from for the separation that we have between the people that lead us and the people that are actually in our communities. I know you mentioned too that you, you thought uh, was it was it mask wearing or shutdown orders should have should have been in effect more quickly. What's your view of the governor's approach aside from the legislature? Yeah, I, I think Governor Raimondo has has done a really good job, especially in comparison to the rest of the country. I think we really have to keep in mind and keep it in context that while she's a state leader, there are a lot of people in the state that identify their leadership in the President of the United States. And for better or worse, whatever you think of him, he is the President and his leadership does resonate with a lot of people. And when I think of leadership, the best way to lead is to lead by example. And something as simple as him being willing to wear a mask in March or not call it a hoax, it's just gut-wrenching to think of the amount of lives that could have been saved. So I think we have to keep in context that Governor Raimondo's leadership throughout this crisis um, is, is playing maybe a second stage to the leadership of Donald Trump, and that has posed a lot of the the, the further problems that we've seen arise from the from the pandemic, but all in all, I, I think she's done um, really as as good of a job as can be expected. I do think that there was a little bit of room for improvement um, in in the local states, not just in Rhode Island, with just enforcing uh, a quicker shutdown and a more mandatory shutdown. And I think that that could have been something that really really. Um, Helped. But at the same time, I don't want to be overly critical of anybody in that position because it's obviously an unprecedented crisis. And considering the president that we have and everything that he's done to throw a wrench into real pragmatic solutions, um, I think it's really important to, to consider that. Sure. So the state's faced with another big decision now with the return to, to school. Um, we got word this week that it will be delayed a couple of weeks. Um, are you hearing about this from folks? I imagine so. What, what are your... Yeah, people, people are confused. People are concerned. They, they don't know what to do. People don't know whether it's safe to, to send their children back to school. They don't know what to do if they can't send their children back to school. I've met a number of people that are just really in dire straits, and I've met you know, parents of children with developmental disabilities and, and they've been in a, in a real tough position with not having the, the resources there to send their children where they're where they were being taken care of before um, I don't think anybody really has the the answer to this but I, I do think that this is such an important reminder and it reflects on so much of why we need functional competent government that actually prioritizes people because there really is no excuse that we should be in this position right now going into the school year. I mean, we had a pandemic 
breakout in March. And with functional, competent government, we could have been in such a better position right now where people didn't have this concern. So I think that pragmatically, you have to evaluate and be really creative in the approaches that are going to work best to, to transition to sending children back to school. I think in some, dis I don't think it's a blanket approach. I don't think you can say one size fits all. I think you have to look at um, local cases. I think you have to look at a lot of different data points and, and really evaluate it. But the important thing to me is that we provide relief to families that may have to stay home with their children. We keep in mind the, the working class people that really rely on, on school not to just grow their child and benefit their child in their progression, but to, to take care of their children during the day while they're working. So I think I, I, um, I read yesterday that there was a little bit of a, an approach with local communities and, and evaluating how many cases are in one community versus the other. But I think we also have to keep, and that's very practical and, and an important thing to consider, but I think we also have to realize that these district lines and these state lines, they're very arbitrary, right? There's not a wall up that protects a global pandemic from, from one town to the next. People cross that, people interact, and the way that this virus has shown itself to be, it can be very deceptive and um, we have to keep all of these things in mind and not pretend that one community is going to be much safer than a neighboring town. Uh, we are all in this together, so we have to have a really systematic and, and fundamental approach to all of it. If, uh, if you were elected, what, what are some of the top priorities for you, particular issues or, or pieces of legislation that uh yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to sound as if I'm overly idealistic. I understand that, uh, you know, the, the expression, it takes an act of Congress, came for a reason, right? It's, it's very challenging to get legislation passed. However, that's the reality against the backdrop of having, again, I feel, a culture that doesn't have a sense of urgency. And... It's funny because um, when I first ran, there was someone who mentioned to me that even if I w were to win, I wouldn't get a single piece of legislation passed in my first five years in office. And my response to her was, even if that's the case, at least I'll go out kicking and screaming. Because I believe that when you're an elected leader, it's not all just about the votes that you take or the legislation that you introduce. There's a platform that you have and you have an opportunity to advocate for uh, different positions and different causes that you care about and that people care about. And I think what's really, really telling too is um, the Costco development in Cranston. I have gotten dozens of emails and strong opposition to it from the number of people in the community that are obviously very concerned about the residual impacts of that type of development, and I literally have had only two in favor of it. Yeah. 
But what it shows me is that when people collectively come together and use their voice as a community, they can really demand change. They can be the ones to drive the ball down the field, so to speak. And I feel that when you're an elected leader, that leadership comes with rallying the public and informing them, being connected to them, being accountable to them, letting them know about the issues that are on the table, the legislation that we're trying to pass, how it would impact them and getting them to collectively form that rally cry to really make that change happen. So often I find that what politicians do is they lick their finger, they hold it to the wind, and they see which way the public sentiment is, and then that's the way that we go. And I think we really need a, a change in attitude with that. When you're an elected leader, you have to be willing to lead. You have to be willing to take a firm position on something and bring the public along with you, and then be willing to be accountable to that public and answer to them. So as far as specific pieces of legislation that I would like to pass, I really think everything is on the table right now, and I think we're gonna have to have uh, some really serious conversations on how we reform a lot of our, our programs for a number of different reasons. But our healthcare system to me is something that is a top priority. I think just seeing the fact that in a pandemic, so many people's healthcare is tied to their employment as we now have massive unemployment and many people have lost their jobs, including myself, that should be really telling to people about why we need fundamental change in our, in our healthcare system. And I think that we can really accomplish um, some major changes and major improvements right here in Rhode Island. What, what's your sense of what the appetite is out there in the community for this more progressive approach, both in, in the district and I guess, you know, there's, there's a contingent of the, an aspect of the Democrat, a, a, a faction of the Democratic caucus that is more vocally, you know, opposed to the speaker and, and pushing this kind of agenda. Do you, do you think, uh, are you getting traction in the district and do you think there's traction statewide to, to build on those gains this year? Yeah, it, it's funny. Um, well, maybe I shouldn't say it's funny. It's interesting because, like I mentioned before, I was born and raised in Cranston. And I've had some relatives leave the state of Rhode Island. But I just turned 36. And all my life, I've heard this kitchen table type of conversation where people joke about the corruption that we have in the state of Rhode Island people have become accustomed to it. They think it's just the way that it is. And people might not even know where exactly that corruption lies, but they know it's there. They can feel it, they can see it, they can understand that the people that represent them are not connected to their community and don't prioritize their needs. They know that there's backdoor deals, there's special favors. You know, the expression is, it's all about who you know in the state of Rhode Island, right? And that just cannot be the way that it is. It can't be because people really need a government that works for them. It's not a victimless crime to have corruption. There's people that are hurt by politicians that don't prioritize their needs. There's only so much money. There's only so many resources. And where we allocate those things, every dollar matters. So I don't look at corruption or insider dealing as just the way that it is and 
something that uh, doesn't have a victim behind it. I, I tie it into where the people that are left behind, the working class people, um, the, 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 the elderly, our school systems, I see that connection of where those people are, where they're affected, where they're hurt by a government that doesn't prioritize them and instead prioritizes the their friends within the state house, lobbyists, and and people that have enough political pull to get a special favor done. In terms of uh, the local races, the other the other big local races on the ballot this year, um, it's obviously a, the big change of leadership coming to Grant, so Mayor Fung leaving. Are you supporting any of the uh, the candidates from there at this point? Or are you well, I I should say that. Um, when the early on in the mayoral race, um, when Steve Stikos was the first Democrat to um, declare his candidacy, I did uh, did support him and I made a donation to his campaign. Uh, after Maria Bucci uh, announced, I quite frankly didn't really know a lot about Maria Bucci. Um, I know that obviously she served in, in the city of Cranston before, but I didn't really know a whole lot about her uh, policy platforms. Um, what I've seen most recently has given me some, some good optimism for her. And I'm looking forward to seeing the two of them really interact. I think we have a debate yeah. schedule coming up. So I am, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to hopefully having some Democrat leadership city of Cranston. I think it's been a really, really long time. I am a big fan of, of some of the, the people that um, serve on our city council right yeah, now. I was going to ask, are there any particulars that... Yeah, I'm, 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 I mean, I've really been impressed with, with Steve Stikos. I've been very impressed with John Donegan. Um, and I am very, very impressed with Anise Germain. Mm -hmm. I'm really happy to see her be my new councilwoman. Yeah. She's a neighbor. She lives a few streets over from me. Oh, cool. And... You know, her story, I think, is just so powerful and just such a testament to what our country is really about, what it's supposed to be about. And the nation of Haiti, too, uh, where she is originally from, I think really shows a lot of where our economic structure in this country as a whole has really gone wrong in so many ways. And yeah, I'm very, very excited to have her um, hopefully win the election in November. And, and I think that she'll really serve my ward very, very well. How are you uh, in this time of, of social distance and, and mask wearing? And uh, I'm sure a lot of people are, you know, the, the other candidates I've spoken with have, have, have talked about the door-to-door -door experience and some of the challenges that yeah. we have faced out there. So we hit the, the home stretch here just a few weeks before the primary. Um, how have you been finding things and what's your approach going to be? Well, it's interesting because it's the only way that I've ever campaigned before. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I learned how to how yeah. to navigate that field, and yeah, it basically turned into you know wearing a mask and trying to find the balance between knocking on somebody's door and not having them be freaked out because they can't identify who somebody is and their their face is shown. So step in, you know, ten to fifteen feet back, and hoping somebody is comfortable enough to engage you in a conversation. I think most people have been pretty uh, approachable. 
I haven't really had anybody, well, a small handful of people that are, are, you know, for understandable reasons, very hesitant to engage in a, in a conversation. But, you know, it's a fine balancing act because there's really, really important issues that are up for grabs in this election cycle and they impact people's lives in major, major ways. And that's why it's so important to be able to engage people on the issues and let them know the choice that they have to make and at the same time not expose anybody to a deadly pandemic. What this virus has showed us with how deceptive it is, it's been a major concern of mine where I'm, I'm young, I'm healthy, I could be one of those asymptomatic people that carries it and spreads to somebody. So that's something that I've been extremely mindful of. I uh, was really, really disappointed in the General Assembly and the whole signature gathering process. Uh, I think that just spoke volumes to the lack of connection to the concern in the community with not offering people a really viable and um, easy way of collecting signatures other than a face-to-face interaction. But again, it's a reflection of the disconnect and where we don't prioritize the well-being of people like we should. Well, Brandon, thank you very much for coming in and uh, good luck. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity. And if uh, anybody ever wants to engage me, one of the main things that I'm, I'm running on on my platform is my experience was not always one that I was able to engage uh, my representative and I feel that to truly represent people you have to be very accessible and you have to be accountable to them so I encourage anybody if you have questions about any type of particular policy or any questions about me personally anything at all I want to be available to people I want to interact with them so call email me anytime thank you Brandon. Radio Beacon is a production of Beacon Communications, publisher of the Warwick Beacon, Cranston Herald, Johnston Sunrise, and Coventry Reminder newspapers. Find us online at warwickonline.com, cranstononline.com, johnstonsunrise.net. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Rodybeat, R-H-O-D-Y-B-E-A-T. This podcast is hosted by Anchor Podcasts. Subscribe today on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or other podcast platforms.